Wait, are you or Sean leading this? I am. Okay. But I hope I hope he can bring some bring insight. Something. So I hope he can bring some insight that I may not have. I, I did spend a good amount of time, but I feel like I could be overlooking some critical aspects. Who knows? Hope he brings some big dick info. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm happy to announce that I have a new spoken word album coming out soon entitled Mood, the Apoplectic Dialectics of Sean Hartman. <laughs> Mood. Mood. That's, that's great. I'd... Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, and this might have to be my last podcast, guys. I just got tapped for a huge project. Oh, do tell. I'm making a new app in the metaverse, a virtual experience of sorts. Yes. You want to hear more about it? I do. do tell. It's, it's going to be a mashup, right, of Zach De La Rocha lyrics over the timeless hits of Daft Punk. Presented in a vaudevillian atmosphere. I'm going to call it Random Access Tap Dance Memories. <laughs> I love it. Great job. Looking forward to it. I was off work for the past week, so that's uh, what I got up to. That's the <laughs> result. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you'll be leaving the podcast, but I wish you the best. In- oh, it was a joke, Peter. I know you're glad to see me go. There's a joke, though. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> we remain a trio. <laughs> we remain a trio. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I play it not like it is, but like it will be. Oh? You know who else does that? I got nothing here. Could it Sean? be... Dick Hyman? It is Dick Hyman. Oh, (laughs) that makes sense. The man making that futuristic space music. Exactly, that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be covering the 1969 release on Command Records from Dick Hyman. It's called Moog, the Electric Eclectics of Dick Hyman. Featuring the full-length version of The Minotaur. Exactly. And that's where we are going to start. Perfect. Side B, track one, The Minotaur. Thank you. 
When do you say this came out? January 1969. Maybe the only time a song like that could be a top 40 hit. It was a top 40 hit. It peaked at number 38 on the U.S. top 40 and at number 20 in Canada. And it was the first hit single using a Moog synthesizer. Far out. Truly far out. This was a popular album. It was it's like the 30th something album by Dick Hyman who was mainly known as a jazz pianist and composer and it peaked at number 4 on the Billboard Jazz Charts and number 30 on the Billboard 200 as an album. <laughs> hard to believe, isn't it? That's very hard to believe cuz that's probably the most accessible song on the album. Weird. <laughs> I kind of I've been wondering like who was buying this record to make it a hit, you know? Were the kids into it or is it just like Dick Hyman fans? Was it like what was what was the target audience? The general public. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Audiophiles and the general public. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, he would have been in his 40s at this point. You said it was his 30th album. <laughs> 30th something. Yeah, right around there. He was born in 1927. He would have been in his early 40s at this point. Yeah. Yeah, he would have been in his early... 42. Yep. So that's like too old, and he's been putting out jazz music too long to be cool with the kids, I would think. But that's like way too weird for who I imagine his fan base would have been at that time. That is truly a mystery. Well, this label, Command Records, was run by this guy Enoch light and they put out they were a company focused on producing records targeted at audiophiles they had even done they had the command test record it was called the stereo checkout released in 1960 so it was designed to test out your stereo make sure it was up to snuff and dick hyman had been 
recording like electric organ albums for them prior to this. He was all over the place, as we'll see. <laughs> he, yeah. He seems like he was, you know, a, both a leader and a session player that was kind of willing to just lend his hand wherever he could. And I'm sure as a jazz player, you have to do that. Take any gig you can get. <laughs> and when your name's Dick Hyman, you don't have to be concerned about integrity, right? <laughs> <laughs> we had to address the elephant in the room at some point. <laughs> and now that we've done that, we can focus on the Minotaur that we just heard. It was recorded as three improvised overdubs on the Moog synthesizer on top of a maestro rhythm drum machine. So there's a drum machine track underneath that. And the melody, the bass line, and the raga-like drone tone are all played by Dick Hyman. And that beat on the maestro rhythm machine was a result of combining a waltz and a bossa nova. Hmm. And uh, Dick Hyman said that the melody and the tone of it was based around both Greek and Indian influences. Hence that raga-like drone. Yeah, there's actually a lot of Greek music influence throughout this record, which is interesting. I hadn't thought of it as being influenced by that, but in researching this, I you know, read that that was a big influence to the sound and it fully makes sense once you listen to it in that context. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was news to me too, but then I started to hear it once I had that in my head. I'm like, yeah, that's uh, probably g- giving it a unique flavor for, you know, the space age record. Mm-hmm. The, some of the stuff that he's doing on the synthesizer on that track, you can hear echoes of it in a track that was released the following year, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's Lucky Man, which is another song with an early synthesizer solo on it. When Peter was pulling up here to record the episode, I heard that song just blaring from his car all the way inside the house (laughs) and was a little perplexed as to why he was just blaring that song. So (laughs) Now you know, it all comes together. It all comes together now. I had no idea I was listening to it that loud, and I walk in, and Jeremy's like, Peter, do you like the song Lucky Man? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was just coincidence. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm just blasting it (laughs) in my car. So, you know, what do you guys know about Dick Hyman going into this? Nothing. I listened to it the first time knowing absolutely nothing about him other than flipping through record boxes and kind of snickering when I saw his name and I gave it a listen then I read about him then I listened again and I have to say I did not enjoy either listen (laughs) but no no surprises there for me (laughs) yeah it was interesting as an artifact and interesting to me with where he did go with it but I didn't actually enjoy the experience of having to listen to it. <laughs> That's probably pretty similar to how a lot of people feel about this record, including a lot of people that own and play this record. It's it's fun and interesting, but um, it does a lot of it sounds a little dated. But it, it's very interesting as a historic piece, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have to approach records with that 
mindset. You're not necessarily going in to fully enjoy it as a musical experience as much as a historical experience. Yeah, and having read up on him a little bit and trying to envision like a 42-year-old jazz pianist who's like insanely talented as a classical performer as well doing like soundtrack work and putting out jazz albums and all kinds of stuff in the cultural context of 1969 for him to put this out feels very like Dadaist to me so I like tried to listen with that mind frame and still didn't enjoy it but it it added an interesting layer (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I listened to a couple interviews with Dick Hyman and I feel like I got a little bit of a better understanding of maybe where he was coming from in making this record. Because as we said, he played a lot of jazz, but he doesn't really and did not think of himself as a jazz musician. He was someone that could play jazz and hang with pretty much anybody and has played with some very legendary names in the world of early bebop jazz. There's video footage of him playing with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. But he kind of just considered himself as a, a musician and was unafraid of being the square musician in certain circles. He talked about how he never used drugs or wanted to fall into the lifestyles. He was married young, he was hardworking, and could play all these different styles, mostly just so that he could take any gig, any studio gig, any club gig. He did backing music for shows. He wrote jingles for radio. I mean, he could literally just show up anywhere and do great so i think knowing that that is his musical background coming into this it feels like he just is comfortable in this wide range of styles and wanted to just make a very creative record that goes a lot of unexpected places and i'd also read that his his main goal with this is he wanted to humanize this new electronic instrument if he could which some of it it makes sense to me. I feel like he achieved it. I mean, as we said, it sounds a little dated and, and weird at times now, but it's a cool creative venture for him, I think. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that at this time, 1969, the Moog synthesizer had mainly been kind of more of a sound effects thing. It hadn't really been utilized as an instrument very much. And the founder of the label that this came out on Enoch light. This came out on command records. He heard the Moog and knew it had to become part of the new sound of command. As I mentioned, they were a label that targeted audiophiles and he had the perfect player in Dick Hyman. You know, Dick Hyman was, as we established, he was a jazz and studio keyboardist composer and arranger would just do whatever he needed. And he was working as a session player in New York for, it seems like a number of labels command, just being one of them. And he had mastered electric organs like the Wurlitzer, the Hammond and the Lowry. And so that kind of gave him insight into how to create intriguing sounds with an electronic instrument, but he wasn't an engineer. He was a musician and something like the Moog being such new technology you needed an engineer, you know, to Hyman. He said it resembled a telephone switchboard. The Moog, the modular Moog has all those. It's a yeah. catch bay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so Moog's New York sales 
and technician representative, a fellow named Walter Sear, was brought in to program the Moog to help Dick Hyman bring out its musical capabilities. So Hyman would suggest a kind of sound that he was looking for, and Walter Sear would help him explore patches until they found what they liked. And Walter Sear also engineered the multi-track recordings that were necessary. I didn't realize this, but you could only play one note at a time on the Moog. It wasn't chords. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I also didn't know that. Yeah, so anytime you're hearing more than one note on this record, it's because he overdubbed a lot to make this happen. Yeah, they were layering stuff. You know, the other thing that I found interesting, you mentioned that the Moog was thought of more as a sound effects generating instrument. The other thing is that he used a drum machine on here a lot at a time when the only real known use of it was for like solo artists to have some rhythm and accompaniment, just like small time people making music in the clubs or on the street or something and want a drummer without having to pay someone. So like neither of these instruments were thought of as you could make a whole record and compose with this. So this was mind blowing to a lot of people when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. It was simultaneously kind of a novelty and a breakthrough. (laughs) Exactly. So a lot of this was built and composed through the multi-tracking process, much of it being improvisational, kind of coming up with stuff that worked on top of each other. Uh, Some was pre-written, some not. There are some tracks that include additional instruments like drums, bass, guitar, organ, and harpsichord, but predominantly the sound you're hearing is the Moog. And as we said, yeah, Dick Hyman was among the select few at this time who recognized the instrument's musical potential. Other contemporaries of his that were starting to see it that way at this time were also were people like Wendy Carlos, Beaver and Krauss, who we fairly recently did an episode on, and Gershon Kingsley. In fact, this came out just a couple months after Wendy Carlos put out Switched on Bach, which is Bach music set to synthesizers. We've talked about it a couple times. I know Jeremy's a big fan of Switched on Bach. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I read that that actually was the record that the command label owner heard and was like, all right, you're making a Moog record. Yeah, well, and it, it... it would be fast turnaround, but I can see, you know, I can see that happening. Yeah, if they, because it was like October of 68 that Switched on Bot came out, and this came out in January of 69, but probably they were cranking them out. Well, Switched on Bot was a big hit. You know, there was a couple fringe artists that were working with the Moog and other early synthesizers, but uh, Wendy Carlos was the first one to figure out a way to start really moving units with this so it it makes sense that command being the kind of weird crossover audiophile novelty label that they were would want to jump on that trend as soon as it was starting to get hot Mm -hmm. yeah and in theory the switched on Bach would be more for classical buffs but i think that's another one that had enough novelty as well as breakthrough aspect that it crossed over from what I understand, actually, a lot of classical buffs really hated it and thought that it was like a travesty to the art form. So it might have been bringing in a lot of new people. Yeah, to the I can totally see that. that. Yeah. 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 This wasn't intended to enter the space age. <laughs> Purists. <laughs> the aforementioned Gershon Kingsley, just a 
few months after this album, the Dick Hyman album that we're talking about today, he released the hit song Popcorn, the hit instrumental Popcorn. Mm. And so this is a time period where the, the Moog is just taken off. Yeah, this would have been the same year that Buffy St. Marie did Illuminations, which wasn't a Moog, but was in fact synthesized. Yeah. One of the early synthesizer records. Yeah. Yeah, and as we've stated, this is just one of those unique times in the music industry when people could make some genuinely weird art and have financial success with it. So, you know, what a time. (laughs) You know, they're definitely, with the artwork on this, they're playing into the space race obsession. And this would have been released right after the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. And just a few months before the moon landing as well oh interesting that makes sense i feel like people that were into 2001 a space odyssey when they came out i could see them all buying this record that makes sense to me yeah i even wonder i noticed none of the titles really play into any kind of lunar space moon type stuff but the word moog it almost looks like the word moon (laughs) is prominently featured with imagery of the moon right on the front so yeah, they're they're definitely riding the space age hype, and we're gonna get in another track though. I want to pl- play the topless dancers of Corfu, and this was one that was composed for the album, meaning it was pre-written, and it actually features a drummer and bassist as well as Dick Hyman on Moog and Honky Tonk Upright Piano. So let's listen to that. This is side A, track one. Topless Dancers of Corfu. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's how the album opens. Yeah, with a classic 12-bar blues. <laughs> there might have been some guitar in there, too. Did it sound to you, like, to you guys like there was some guitar in there as well? It did sound like it a couple times, yeah. There, the uh, drummer is listed as Buddy Saltzman. He's best known for his work with The Four Seasons, but he's also been on a number of big songs. He was on Janice Ian's first hit, Society's Child, Lou Christie, Lightning Strikes, The Monkeys, I'm a Believer, which I'm shocked to learn that it wasn't Mickey Dolan's playing drums on a monkey song. Especially <laughs> a big hit one of theirs? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and he's also on a couple albums we've covered, Melanie, Gather Me, and Jimmy Spheris, Isle of View. Nice. Wow. So that's Buddy Saltzman, the drummer on that song. Chet Amsterdam on bass. He's worked with a bunch of people, too, among them Laura Nero, as well as Lottie Golden, both musicians we've discussed on the podcast in the past and may feature in the future. But the guitarists are listed as Jay Berliner, who worked with Harry Belafonte, as well as Charles Mingus. He's actually the guitarist on The Black Saint and The Sinner Lady. And Art Ryerson, who worked on a lot of early Bill Haley songs, early rock and roll, as well as worked with Tony Bennett, of all people. So, yes, clearly some renowned session players lending themselves to this release on command by Dick Hyman. <laughs> now, I've uh, I've heard it stated that if you were to make a a list or category of like the New York wrecking crew, that Dick Hyman would have to be a part of that. That completely makes sense mm-hmm. with everything I've learned. Yeah, and it also makes sense that, you know, he would be able to bring in just all these pros that he's probably worked with in the past that are very versatile musicians and just down for anything. Yeah, and he was well established by this point. And the thing is, he's still around. <laughs> he's 94 years old and still working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a, a great interview subject. It's fun to listen to him. And there's some footage of some more recent musical performances by him, too, that are really good. There's one I saw that Moog actually posted that's him playing a, a reissued Moog along with a uh, you know standard acoustic piano, and it's beautiful. He still makes some very interesting music. I watched that video, too. That was a cool video. Yeah. And it was, yeah, just within the last few years, right? Mm-hmm. You guys want to learn a little bit about his background? Yes. He was born Richard Hyman, so it is his real name. And he was born in New York City on March 8th, 1927. As we mentioned, just mentioned, he's 94 years old. And he was classically trained by his uncle, Anton Ravinsky, a concert pianist. And his older brother also had a jazz record collection, which a young Dick inherited and it introduced him to a wide variety of jazz. He began professionally recording in the 1950s, and as Sean mentioned earlier, he performed with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie for Parker's only film appearance with sound in 1952, which I did not realize that footage of Charlie Parker performing was that scarce. I mean, I knew material by him in general is kind of scarce. There's a lot of Charlie Parker releases that are just really poor quality room mics or tape recorders. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he he died all too young. That's true. I have 
some Charlie Parker records where the fidelity is low. Yeah, you run into that a lot. <laughs> Dick Hyman went on to become the music director for Arthur Godfrey, as well as the orchestrator of the hit musical Sugar Babies. And Sean kind of touched on the fact that, yeah, he just composed, arranged, conducted whenever he could. He went on to score nearly a dozen of Woody Allen's films and other movies that he's worked on musically include Moonstruck and the Scott Joplin movie. He's done scores for dance, ballet, recorded several pop albums for Enoch Light's Command label first, as we mentioned, using like the Lowry organ before he went on to his Moog albums. Following this album that we're listening to today, he released The Age of Electronicus, which was pop song covers instead of originals. And it just goes on and on. Like I said, this is his 30th something album. At this point, he has, I think, well over 100 just under his name. Not counting just ones that he's on. Probably gets into the thousands. Yeah. Amazing. Easily. I'm actually ready to feature another cut, though. And this is one that I think struck Jeremy a little funny when he was first checking this out. I'm sure among many of the moments, but the tap dance in the memory banks. Also referenced in my brilliant co-host name. Exactly. It's when I knew it's good that we were featuring it. This is improvised over the maestro rhythm unit set to tango. And well, we'll talk more about it when we come back. Let's listen to Tap Dance in the Memory Banks, Side A, Track 4. Thank you. 
on the stranger tracks on this album, including this one, there's a lot of moments where you hear a sound like, wait, I know what that's from. That's from, you know, Pac-Man or some like specific video game or sound effect that you've heard before, which just goes back to what we said that this was primarily strictly a sound effects instrument. So it's interesting hearing some of those same sounds recontextualized. And I'm sure some of them are like, you know, just accidentally similar to other things that we've heard before. Yeah. The previous track we listened to, there's clearly the Mario jump sound Mm -hmm. from Super Mario Bros. Yeah. I have to wonder if this informed video games where a lot of early video game programmers tuned into albums like this, or was it just what sounds were available? (laughs) What early electronics could create. Probably column A, column B. Yeah, that one is definitely on the more bizarre side. Less commercial, for sure. I'd say the first two tracks that we listened to. (laughs) Less commercial is an understatement, I would say. Yes. (laughs) And I love that they intentionally put all the pop songs up front to kind of lure you in and give you this false sense of security before they just go completely buck wild on some of these tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And in that one in particular, it really feels like he's experimenting. And maybe and I know he's a very accomplished player, but it seems like maybe he doesn't even exactly know where he's going at some points. Yeah. And I've heard him state that, you know, a lot of this was just trying new things and making interesting sounds. And he thought that some of the tracks worked better than others. I mean, he said that he thought the Minotaur worked out really well, even though he was very surprised that it became a hit. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> that has been a surprise. <laughs> yeah, 30-something albums, and then this is what hits, like, big time. Mm-hmm. Or crosses over into the pop sphere. And he didn't, you know, this isn't a style that he stuck with. I don't think that he thought that he was, like, at the vanguard of electronic music. <laughs> I don't think he saw himself as a pioneer by any means. No, and this session might not have even like stood out to him that much compared to all the other things that he'd done. So it's just another trying some weird thing, making some interesting sounds and moving on to the next job tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, and it's probably one that he gets asked about a significant amount considering it's just, you know, probably a week or two <laughs> of his life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, he's a career pianist you know, he's worked with benny goodman west montgomery count basie bet midler you know <laughs> and then <laughs> this weird synth record is uh one of the standouts remember when you did the bleep bloops over the tappy dance back in 69 <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you remember you weren't there man <laughs> yeah and he does remember because he wasn't partaking as we said like all the much of the counterculture of the time. I mean, he was he was like my age at this time. He was in his yeah. early 40s. If I did my like one of my big standout things right now, yeah, it would just be like it would be a strange thing to encounter for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I am doing that with I'd buy that for a dollar, right? This is <laughs> this is your masterwork right now, Peter. <laughs> yeah. I am there talking about Dick Hyman Moog. Welcome to the podcast Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Well, Sean, I am curious what you might have for recommended albums for this. So it's tough to pick a short list of Moog records because I love these and there are just so many interesting ones out there. Some of them are 
actually really good music. Some of them are just goofy novelty records, but it's something I've always been drawn to in the dollar bin thrift store digging. But the short list I came up with for today, we'll start off with one that we've talked about before, Beaver and Krause, All Good Men from 1972. Another record that Jeremy does not put his stamp of approval on, but that's okay. As we said, Beaver and Krause were uh, Moog salesmen and very important pioneers of this specific instrument. Another one that is not technically a dollar bin record, but you might be able to find it there anyways, Ramsey Lewis's Mother Nature's Son from 1969, which has some high-profile Moog features on there, mostly in more of a uh, sound effects context, but that's also the one that Ramsey did that has uh, a bunch of covers from the White Album that had just come out, and then he went right in the studio like a week later and ripped this album out. Another one that's pretty similar to this, in fact, the artwork is very similar, and they probably intentionally did this to try and capitalize on the success of the Dick Hyman Moog record, but Claude Dengine's Moog, Claude Dengine and the Moog synthesizer from 1970. Was that a Pickwick release? Um, let me see. Sounds like a Pickwick move. That is a Phase 4 stereo release, which I think might be related to command in some way or if nothing else is just like a very similar audience it, it sounds like an audiophile label it is yeah so they similar to command they dealt with some audiophile and also some kind of novelty type stuff but that one has like a space theme and some cool fonts on it and just is very very similar to this packaging and pretty good music and you can find that one cheaper than a lot of other comparable moog records two others to look for Gil Trithal's Switched on Country from 1972. That one's pretty goofy, but it is fun to hear Moog interpretations of country music. Highly recommended. And then the last one, also not a dollar bin record, but I have found this one cheaper than it should be more often than other kind of mid-range rare Moog records. Morton Sabotnik's The Wild Bull from 1968. This is one of the few guys who was making... Moog heavy records before Dick Hyman, but without quite the same level of success that Wendy Carlos had. Morton Sabotnik is also famous for doing the record Silver Apples of the Moon from 1967, which inspired the famous band Silver Apples. The famous band Silver Apples. Well, the infamous, <laughs> the, cult. The, the cult famous, <laughs> the legendary for a select few group of record collectors. <laughs> but yeah, that's my list. Otherwise, if you're into this and you're just digging through those dollar bins and you see some goofy looking novelty records from around this time period, just flip it around. And if you see a Moog synthesizer in the list of instruments, it's probably worth buying. That's my humble opinion. Thank you, Sean, Dad. You're welcome. I was thinking it was Mort Garson who did the music for Plants, right? Yes. And that record is absolutely incredible as well. Very hard to find originals, but there's some good reissues and you can find that music online too. The Plantasia. That's Yeah, I couldn't remember the name of it. Yeah, Plantasia. <laughs> well, very good, Sean. Yeah, it's, it's kind of worth pointing out. I, I feel like this album albums along these lines are in a sense kind of the we've talked about exotica how it connects with space age and i I feel like this is in a way sort of the the next step 
in in that sense from like they're not unlike exotica records they're just supposed to represent the future and somewhere else another plane or (laughs) place yeah exactly i mean i think one of martin denny's final records was actually a moog record as well so i think you're spot on with that comparison they're really fun Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even if you don't necessarily find yourself in enjoying them on just a level of sitting down and enjoying a record, they're real, they can be a curiosity too. And for me, that's just as fun. I almost can't separate the two in my mind. Yeah. And it, it makes sense that this would also be marketed to audiophiles because this kind of thing would sound really cool on a nice stereo system or even a really nice pair of headphones. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, sitting down, this is one I've had in my collection for over a decade. I found this at the, uh, we'll not say famous, we'll say cult basement <laughs> Harvey's <laughs> in Kalamazoo. We've, we've mentioned Harvey's a, a couple times on the podcast. It's probably been a long time since we did, but there's a guy in Kalamazoo who has tens of thousands of records for sale in his basement. It's a staple of the local record collecting scene. And I I found this down there probably cost me 50 cents or a buck. And I've I've had it for years, but I've never really sat down and listened closely with headphones. It was something I would put on and do other things. I'd never, there's plenty to read on the, in both the gatefold and the back of the album too. Like they're really selling this to you and giving you a lot of information about what they're trying to accomplish here. That's where I got my title from. The last paragraph on the back of the jacket says, The future comes vividly alive in the grooves of this record because Dick Hyman, Command Records, and the Moog Synthesizer play it not like it is, but like it will be. They're telling you, this is the future of music you're hearing right here. (laughs) And, you know, in some ways it really was. Like, uh, synthesizers became a lot more of a thing later on. Yeah. True. Another 10 years or so and they you know even queen were putting them on their albums by the by 1980 (laughs) i do want to acknowledge before we get out of here music historian tom holmes had a piece on moogfoundation.org that was very helpful with putting together a lot of information for this episode so i just wanted to acknowledge that and going along with what i was just saying about these albums you know even if you don't enjoy them on a musical level the curiosity factor is another thing that you know the historical curiosity but also you know what else they're great for sampling oh yeah a perfect transition into what i assume is the final clip that you're about to play indeed sean we're gonna leave you with the moog and me side a track three and this was sampled on a pretty prominent album, Beck's Odelay from 1996 on the track Sissy Neck. And that is actually Dick Hyman whistling on this song. And you'll also notice as we listen, there are breaks in the maestro rhythm unit that were accomplished by using a foot pedal. Simple enough, but you will mm-hmm. note that. So this is a pretty... Great track. Perfect one to go out on, in my opinion. Do we have any final thoughts from either of you? Buy all the Moog records that you can find. It's a fun instrument. 
I disagree with Sean, but it's interesting. <laughs> Buy all the Moog records you can find if you like having a good time. Yeah, <laughs> that I can agree with. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, I can agree too, and I think we're ready to get out of here. We're going to ride that Moog off into the lunar eclipse. <laughs> and this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman.